We'll hear argument next in number 93-64-97, Frank McFarland versus James A. Collins. remains in session. Don't talk until you get outside. Justice, and may it please the court, Frank McFarlane asked the district court to appoint him a lawyer and to stay his execution long enough so that that lawyer could do what was proper and necessary to prepare and file Mr. McFarlane's first federal habeas corpus petition. The respondents took the position... When, when did he ask that, uh, uh, counsel? He made a request on October the 22nd, Justice Scalia. Um, that was how long after the uh, uh, petition for certiorari had been denied from his original... It was denied June the 6th, mm-hmm. so it was approximately four months, four and a half months. Why did it take that long to worry about the counsel problem? Well, I'm sure that Mr. McFarlane worried about the council problem the entire period of time, Your Honor. Did the Texas Resource Center uh, uh, worry about it? Yes, sir. We worried a great deal about it. And, and uh, what was it, five days before his execution, you came in with this motion? Yes, Your Honor. We took the position and, and have taken the position that we should do everything we can in order to get counsel for unrepresented death row inmates in Texas for state court proceedings before we resort to the provisions in federal court. And you didn't see the problem arising until five days before the execution, having already gotten one extension of the execution, right? Your Honor, we did see the problem arising, and we were worried about the problem. We were worried about the problem with respect to approximately 65 people in Texas. How many lawyers do you have at the Texas Resource Center? At this time, Your Honor, we have uh, 18. And there are 376 people on death row. We are involved in at least 220 cases in which people are in, in which those prisoners are seeking relief. But in this was a man who had court. been scheduled to be executed in mid-September. You had already gotten one extension, and nonetheless, you wait until five days before the extended execution date to come in with a request for counsel? No, Your Honor, we didn't wait until five days before. We did not intend to wait until five days before the execution date. At that point, there was a request pending in state court, and we were expecting and hoping the state courts would grant an extension or would grant a modification and that going to federal court would be necessary. It was not something we wanted to happen, Your Honor. It was not. 
No, not, there were so many easy ways to avoid it. I, I found, find it extraordinary to think it was something you did not want to happen. The Texas Resource Center and the lawyers at the Texas Resource Center consider the recruitment of counsel for people on death row to be an enormous and important responsibility. What we are here today for... Counsel, I am Circuit Justice for the Fifth Circuit, as you know, and the Texas Resource Center comes in at the last minute regularly. Your Honor, we do come in at the last minute, if the last minute is, if you're talking about shortly before an execution date. But we try to come in earlier. In Mr. McFarland's case, the execution date was set without notice to us. We learned about it when Mr. McFarland wrote us and asked us to continue helping him recruit a lawyer. When, during the month of September, and, and it, it's, it may look to an outsider who is only thinking about Frank McFarland's case as though we were sitting around during July, August, and September with Mr. McFarland's agreement waiting for an execution date to be set so that we could put into play the circus that goes on down there. That is not what we were doing, Your Honor. I assure you that's not what we were doing. In the month of September, the month in which Mr. McFarland's execution date was set, there were ten executions. Seven of the people who were scheduled for execution, Your Honor, did not have lawyers. In August, there were, I think there were six executions, and our lawyers were involved in most of those cases. On September the 3rd, I was... I, I can't remember if some of those lawyers, one or two, has come on since then, Your Honor. Of those 18 lawyers, and this is important, although, although it's just a piece of a really big picture, of those lawyers, five have less than two years' experience, and only five have more than five years' experience. Ms. Welch, don't waste any more of your argument time on this. I just want you to know that, uh, that, that I am not... Uh, um, happy with the uh, with the performance of the Texas Research Resource Center in the cases that come before me as circuit justice. Let's uh, leave it at that. I, I understand. Try harder. Respondent took the position in the court below that the court did not have jurisdiction over this matter because Frank McFarlane had not yet filed a legally sufficient habeas petition. The lower courts agreed and denied a stay. In this court, respondent argues that while a federal court may have authority to appoint counsel before the filing of a petition under these circumstances, there is an absolute jurisdictional bar that prevents that court from keeping the prisoner alive. Ms. Welch, you said that uh the petitioner here had not filed, uh, the, the reason the courts denied was he had not filed a legally sufficient habeas petition. Had he filed any habeas petition in the federal court? No, he had only filed a motion requesting appointment of counsel, notifying the court that he was a state prisoner under a sentence of death, that he did want to seek relief under 2254, and that he needed a lawyer, under, uh, that he needed a lawyer to prepare a petition in order to seek that relief. Uh, he specifically asked for the lawyer. And did he ask for a stay at the same time? Y yes, Justice O'Connor. He asked for a stay, 
in order to have a, a lawyer appointed so, and so that that lawyer could do what was necessary to file the petition that was needed under the state's position to invoke the court's jurisdiction. Just to clarify, when the district court did finally obtain counsel for McFarland, I think that was on the very eve of execution, uh, then counsel did file a, a pleading entitled petition for rid of habeas corpus, did he not? That's not it. I mean, the court did not obtain counsel. What happened is uh, the counsel that Danny, uh, Danny Barnes was the lawyer that, that did end up filing a, peti- a petition, he called us that afternoon and told us that he had gotten a call from a, the federal magistrate asking him if he would accept an appointment in this case, and he was calling to find out about the case in order to try to decide whether or not he was in a position to accept an appointment. Uh, but he then he ended did up, file a petition, did he? He did. He, he, he was never appointed, and in fact, he was never contacted by the judge. And the district court thereupon denied the stay based on the merits of an incomplete petition. That's correct, Your Honor. And the divided uh, panel then issued the stay. Well, this court issued a stay at the same time on the petition for certiorari from the lower, from the, the district court and the Fifth Circuit's denial of the appointment of counsel and, and, and stay motion in the first proceeding. Those are two separate proceedings that were filed uh, at the insistence of the, of the court clerk, I believe, in, in the federal court under two separate case numbers. And, and the, there were two stays that were, were simultaneously granted. No one disputes, no one before this court disputes that when Congress enacted 848, it intended to authorize and require district courts to appoint counsel to assist with the preparation and filing of a habeas petition. And there is good reason why no one disputes that, and in fact, the respondents, Amicus, the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, explicitly adopts that interpretation of 848. They know, as it isn't clear that the state agrees, is it? That, you're right, Justice O'Connor. It's not agreed that they concede it. No. They don't dispute it. They have said in the event, if the court determines, they have really not taken a position on it as far as I can in tell. In any event, you take the position that 848 does allow the appointment of counsel by the court prior to the filing of a petition for habeas. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, we definitely do. And and as the uh, Criminal Justice Legal Foundation's brief indicates, they explicitly agree that 848 authorizes the pre-petition appointment of counsel. And in fact, it does have language of in any post-conviction proceeding under 2254 or 2255, uh, the appointment can be made. Um, but you think that doesn't limit you? No, and it's uh, in paragraph. I can't find it. I thought I had it here, but in paragraph eight, under that provision, the the court indicates that counsel appointed in accordance with those provisions shall do whatever is necessary, including uh, six days of execution, and it refers to the post-conviction process 
and it uses language that suggests that counsel is intended to be available at all critical stages. And the, the district court and the Fifth Circuit in this case, uh, what is the position now on, on that point, the appointment of counsel? They did not specific, the Fifth Circuit did not specifically address uh, the right to counsel, but the district court specifically refused to appoint counsel, apparently relying upon the, juris the jurisdictional bar that respondents urge. Would it, would it be simpler to take the position that, uh, that a proceeding does require the filing of a petition, but that in order to give effect to the statutory counsel guarantee, uh, it would be an abuse of discretion to act on the pro forma petition before the appointed lawyer has had time to investigate and, and to amend if, if the lawyer sees fit? I think that that would just, uh, yes, uh, Justice Souter, I think that would certainly address the problem that uh, Frank McFarlane was faced with and, and that is being presented to the court, but, but only if, if it is clear to appointed count or, or to the inmate that an insufficient petition does not invoke uh, the court's jurisdiction and insofar as it requires the barefoot standards to be that, made. That's right. Of course, I suppose the answer to barefoot is that the, um, the uh, statutory provisions for appointment of counsel have come after barefoot, and barefoot uh, should be uh, at least narrowed to, at least not to, um, uh, to, to frustrate the counsel guarantee. Yes, Justice Souter, but in, in addition to that, I think it's important to note that barefoot uh, paid a lot of attention to the fact that in that case he had had competent counsel throughout the proceedings, and to some extent both the Fifth Circuit and this Court relied upon that in approving the standards that have, have since become the... No, I, I realize that. Maybe I'm not getting the point, but it seems to me that, this, that the enactment of the statutory guarantees for counsel in, 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 in both the, the, the state and the, and the federally derived habeas proceedings reflects, in effect, a congressional judgment that, that there ought to be more counsel, i.e., that there ought to be a guarantee of counsel at the habeas stage in a federal court. Uh, and I don't suppose that we could, in effect, um, honor the, that guarantee that Congress has chosen to, uh, to provide uh, if, if barefoot were not narrowed to a degree in order to allow counsel uh, time to do what counsel is supposed to be there, for to, there to do. I absolutely agree with you, Justice Souter. I do think that there could be circumstances where someone files a piece of paper asking for counsel and attempts to prepare what would be considered a petition, but the court might find that it's not a petition. And in those circumstances, I think that the All Risk Act would provide, would provide the habeas court with the necessary authority to issue a stay to protect its jurisdiction but over... Jurisdiction over what? I mean, it seems to me, no matter how liberally you interpret uh, the requirement despite barefoot, you, you, the, the provision for counsel only applies to someone who is, who is seeking habeas corpus. And it seems to me that you, you need some, some assertion of an error in the state court, not simply an assertion... I don't know whether there's an error or not. Appoint a lawyer for me to see if there was one. Uh, that, that's, that's certainly not what Congress uh, said. Congress said if, if there's an error that you're claiming, you're entitled to a lawyer to, to prosecute it. But don't you need some assertion of an error, at least? Yes, Your Honor, but Congress also recognized that in order for a death row inmate to articulate an error sufficiently to benefit from habeas corpus review, a lawyer is necessary. 
help him prosecute his claim of error, but he has to have a claim of error. It's not saying anybody, whether he has a claim of error or not, can, uh, is, is entitled to get a lawyer to see if he might have a claim of error. That, that's not what Congress said. Your Honor, I, I do think that that is what Congress said, that a lawyer is required in order to assist a death row inmate in identifying those claims which must be reviewed by habeas corpus in order to provide an effective remedy for people who are sentenced to death in violation of the Constitution. Well, of course, the further question is the authority to issue a stay. And uh, turning your attention to Justice Souter's suggestion, uh, that a skeletal petition be filed. Uh, is that consistent with Rule 4, the habeas rules, which requires that a petition be dismissed unless it appears on its face that there's a probability of relief? Well, I, I think that it, it could conflict with Rule 4. If Rule 4 is construed as, uh, as an absolute automatic bar to proceeding, but that is not what Rule 4 is, nor what it was intended. While the court might have discretion under some circumstances to do that, I think that 848 makes it clear that it would be an abuse of that discretion, as Justice Souter indicated, if that were done in a case, in a death case, without counsel. So if, if it plainly appears from the facts of the petition uh, that he's not entitled to relief, nevertheless, it would be an abuse of discretion to, to dismiss it in a death case. Your Honor, I, I think that it would be an abuse of discretion to determine from that pleading whether or not someone is clearly entitled or clearly not entitled. And or, or would you say that you could not determine from the pleading whether or not he is clearly entitled? Yeah, yes, Your Honor. I think that, that the rule should be that the court is not permitted to determine from an uncounseled petition that a and prisoner would, would this is apply not in, just in death cases, because that's the only time in which uh, the counselor appointed under the statute, or would you extend this rule to any habeas petition in federal courts? No, I would. Federal court is sort of a filing cabinet until it's uh, in, 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 until the petition is fleshed out. No, Your Honor. I think that when Congress passed 848, it made an absolute determination that counsel is required in every in every capital case. It has not made that determination with regard to other habeas provisions. That would have to be addressed. Yes, in but you're interpreting Rule 4 as saying it's an abuse of discretion to, to, to dismiss until counsel has been obtained. But that is because of the intent expressed in, by Congress in 848. There are counsel provisions that are within the discretion of the court when the interests of justice appear to require appointment of counsel under the Criminal Justice Act. But, but I think that what Congress did in 848 is enact an unrebuttable presumption that the interest of justice requires the appointment of counsel in all capital cases. Is it, is it essentially your argument that 848 contemplates that there will be a lawyer-drawn petition and not that there will be a petition, that the petition will be drawn pro se by the prisoner, so that it's 848 that would inform everything else and would take precedence over in any, any rule. If 848 entitles the, the uh, defendant or petitioner to a lawyer-drawn petition, then the, the question about the, the other questions uh, become uh, moot. Yes, that, I think that, that you're reading 848 to say not only are you entitled to counsel in a capital proceeding, but you are entitled to 
a counsel to draw your habeas petition. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Justice Kinberg. Why do you do that? That's a very roundabout way to say that. I mean, it would be very easy, Congress, to say anyone who desires to file a habeas petition is entitled to a, to a lawyer for that purpose. It didn't say that. It said in any post-conviction proceeding. I, yes, but if you, if you take into account the need for a lawyer and the difference between uh, the right to a lawyer, the discretionary right to a lawyer under 3006A and the mandatory right to a lawyer under 848, it makes no sense to create a situation where a pro se habeas petitioner would go into court, ask for a lawyer, be executed because his petition was inadequate, regardless of whether or not he had any claims that a lawyer could have presented and obtained relief on. That makes no sense. Ms. Welch, your opponents say that the Pennsylvania case, our case of Pennsylvania Bureau of Corrections versus U.S. Marshals, uh, militates against your conviction con- contention that the All Writs Act is available to you. What is your response to that? Uh, the, that case involved uh, I- issuing of is it issuing of subpoenas? Anyway, subpoenas on test of economy. Right. That in that case, there was a specific statute that dealt with the, spe- the specific thing that was before the court. In this case... Isn't there a specific statute dealing with stays? And there is a specific statute dealing with stays, and if you interpret it as we do, it gives the court jurisdiction when a request for counsel is filed. If you interpret it as the state does and limit its application to that period of time after a petition is filed, then there is nothing... It is, it is void, there's a void, there's a blank for that period of time when uncounseled petitioner is seeking his rights under 848. And so you have a totally different situation. Well, you know, if, if you're reading, uh, reading things into Section 848 uh, simply because uh, fairness or logic requires it, uh, why do you have to read into it that, that, that a stay of execution w- would be available? It seems to me the most you would, you would read into it is that if he comes in soon enough to request counsel, counsel will be given an opportunity to draw a habeas petition, and if that petition is, is, uh, is, uh, has merit, then a stay can be issued. But if you come in five days before the, the execution with no claim at all, and ask for counsel. Should you be able to get a stay? You've had 180 days. Your Honor, the question before this court is whether or not the court has jurisdiction to stay in execution when it's necessary in order to appoint counsel and protect its habeas review over claims that are then presented in a counsel petition. And what I'm suggesting is that your necessity argument that, that 848 must operate even before a, a, a meritorious habeas petition has been filed. That argument only carries you to the point where you have to allow them to file it within a reasonable time before a stay of execution is necessary, but not, at, not, not five days before that requires federal courts to stay the, the process of state justice. I, I don't agree with you, Justice Scalia, and I don't think that it's necessary to read the stay provisions into 848. The stay provisions are within the All Writs Act, which authorizes the federal habeas court to, to issue a, a writ or other law orders when it is necessary to protect its prospective jurisdiction over a, a state conviction and death sentence. Its jurisdiction comes from 848, 
And if 848 only guarantees that you get counsel if you apply in a timely fashion, and not when you decide five days before your execution that there may be something wrong, although you can't really state anything wrong. Your Honor... We have to go back to 848, it seems to me, uh, whether you use the All Writs Act or not. There may be circumstances where a a death row inmate so abuses the process and so toys with the court and so ignores available processes that it would not be an abuse of discretion to deny a stay or to deny counsel. But those issues are not before this court. Well, Ms. Welch, when is the earliest time in this case that you think uh, 848 would have allowed the, the appointment of counsel? It's because of the uncertainty about the provisions, Your Honor, it's really difficult for me to say. We had always approached the right to count. Can you look back and say there is some time after which this uh, request could have been made? After the state court refused to appoint counsel or after this and also refused to allow additional time for other measures to be taken that, that might have provided counsel. And when was that? That was October the 22nd when the Court of Criminal Appeals uh, denied our request to order the... And you say no, it, it would not have been possible to have asked for counsel before that date under 848. Well, I, that, was the, the petition, that was the position that we had taken, that we should that we should pursue all available state remedies. Excuse me, you didn't ask the court to appoint counsel until October 22nd. That's the first time you asked the state court to appoint counsel, isn't it? No, we asked the state court to appoint counsel. Well, we went before the state court in September, and the judge was not there, and the the judge modified the date so that we could come back before the actual trial judge. And there was pending before that judge a request for assistance uh, for time to recruit counsel. That judge took the position that Texas law did not authorize him to appoint counsel. And we, and, and so we were trying to persuade that judge to give us enough time to recruit volunteer counsel. But that judge said explicitly uh, to me over the telephone with the district attorney on the phone, I do not interpret Texas law as even allowing me to appoint counsel, so I'm not going to do it. Well, whatever the reason for not asking may have been, the fact is that you did not ask for state appointment of counsel until October 22nd, isn't that right? That, that is, no, no, Your Honor, that's not correct. Uh, Mr. McFarland did ask for counsel uh, in September. And that request was held over when another judge modified the, the uh, execution date until October. I reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Welch. Uh, Ms. Griffey, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. McFarland asked the Court to disregard the plain meaning of 2251 and amend the express limitations enacted by Congress in order to allow a stay of execution to be entered whenever a death sentence inmate approaches a federal court claiming to be without the assistance of counsel. In asking the court to validate his misconstruction of statutory authority, McFarland seeks to effectively overturn the limitations of constitutional review recognized in McCleskey v. Zant and to indirectly overturn the limitations of Coleman, Giratano, and Finley. McFarland complains that the ruling of the court below effectively foreclosed federal habeas review because under the Fifth Circuit's analysis, 
a petitioner is unable to obtain a stay and appointment of counsel without first filing an application, but is unable to file an application without first obtaining the assistance of counsel and a stay. Ms. Frippy, what is your position now on this Section 848? Uh, can a defendant uh, facing an execution obtain appointment of counsel by the federal court before the filing of a petition for habeas? No. 848Q4B. I think it is not open to that interpretation. I think it is not open to that interpretation. Some of the amici supporting your views in the case take a different view, do they not? One did. The amicus of the uh, Criminal Justice Legal Foundation uh, took the position that counsel could be appointed beforehand. However, it is clear that... Normally, you would expect if the habeas petition were going to be prepared properly that some advance preparation might be required uh, by counsel and possibly investigators. That is not what Congress provided for. There is a specific provision, 848Q4B, that refers to a habeas proceeding or a post-conviction proceeding under 2254. 2254 is explicitly conditioned on there being an application on the ground that custody is in violation of the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. The general provisions contained in subsection Q4A and the following provisions are merely general provisions and do not prevail over the specific provision or there would have been no need for that specific provision. Do you think that if the petitioner, uh, prisoner himself files the... uh, habeas petition uh, and then request counsel uh, that it's within the discretion of the court to uh, dismiss the habeas petition based on a review of just what the prisoner has put? Or does the court properly exercise its discretion by refusing to dismiss the petition until the attorneys looked at it? I think that's entirely within the court's discretion. What is not within the court's discretion is the basis upon whether a state... You do not think it would be an abuse of discretion for the court uh, to dismiss the writ, thereby ending the proceeding? I think if there is a petition before the court that raises constitutional basis for relief, then under 848Q, that petitioner is entitled to the appointment of counsel. But he may not be entitled to the appointment of a, to a state of execution unless he raises a substantial showing of the denial of a federal right upon which relief might be granted. Oh, but you even say that before you can get counsel, the petition has to have some merit. Under uh, Rules 2 and Rules 3 and 2242, yes, it does. Otherwise, the district clerk of the court is entitled to uh, not file that petition. So the critical document is the filing of the initial petition. Or application, yes. And Congress, you think, intended uh, an interpretation that the critical document be filed without counsel? That is what Congress wrote. Ms. Griffey, if there's any ambiguity at all, what sense does it make to attribute to Congress the purpose of having an inadequate petition filed Let's take, which is not an unusual case, somebody who has a below normal IQ. Why would Congress want this proceeding to start out with an inadequate pleading? If Congress is providing for counsel on 848, doesn't it make sense to say that Congress wants a well-pleaded complaint rather than an inadequately pleaded complaint? I think you have to judge what Congress intended by the language that is in that statute, and it refers to a post-conviction proceeding under 2254. Congress could have provided for 
the pre-petition appointment of counsel. It could have provided for a stay to allow the appointment of counsel prior to the formulation of an application and petition sufficient time under whatever standard Congress found to prepare that application or petition. But nonetheless, it's Congress didn't do that. This, this statute is plain on its face that the statute requires the pro se petitioner himself to file the pleading, the essential pleading that is going to govern the case and does not give him a right to counsel for that pleading. Not with respect to the filing of the initial pleading. Once a petition has been filed raising error of constitutional dimension, then he is entitled to the appointment of counsel and he is also entitled to file an amended pleading. Is the request for counsel a part of the proceeding? No. A proceeding is commenced... The request for counsel is not a part of the proceeding? If it comes after the filing of an application... If it comes after, it is a part of the proceeding. It is incidental to the proceeding such as a hearing would be or any of the other rules pertaining to federal habeas review that... If it's incidental to the proceeding, then it's part of the proceeding? No... You're hesitating because if you say yes, then the proceeding begins and he's entitled to counsel before the habeas petition is filed. And it seems to me perfectly plausible that Congress intended to expand the proceedings under 2254 by including that phase in which counsel is appointed. If Congress... Under 848. If Congress intended to do that, they did not do that. And it is a well-established rule of statutory construction that the court will not provide what Congress intended to do, but presumably by one theory or another, omitted by inadvertence. But isn't it equally incumbent on us to construe our procedural rules in such a way that it does not turn congressional statutes into dead letters? And if we continue to construe the procedural requirements, as it seems to me you are asking us to do, then 848 was a waste of everyone's time. Because if the petition has to... I will grant you, by the way, for the sake of argument and probably ultimately, that a petition, a habeas petition, must be filed in order for 848 to kick in. But assuming that a habeas petition once filed may, without any abuse of discretion, be finally adjudicated before counsel has had so much as a peek at it, is to turn the 848 guarantee into a farce. And haven't we got an obligation to adjust our procedural requirements in a way that avoids that? The only way that 848Q is turned into a procedural farce by, under that scenario, would be if the petitioner waits until the last minute to file whatever it is... Oh, with respect, I don't think... Maybe I haven't made the question clear. It seems to me that on your argument, that is true if the petitioner comes in on the very first possible day. Because the petitioner comes to the court and says, I want to make a habeas claim and I want counsel. And the court says, in order to get counsel, you've got to file a habeas claim in the first place. And we'll assume that's correct. The petitioner does so, and on your view, it is then no abuse of discretion for the court to look at that petition and say, this is no good. I dismiss it. Or indeed, wait until counsel appears and says, I want to amend the petition. And the court says, oh no, I've got the petition before me and I'm going to dismiss it right now because it is inadequate for various reasons. 
I understood that to be your argument, that that would be no abuse of discretion for the court to do that. Was, was I wrong? There is no abuse of discretion there. Okay, then, then 848 is a farce. 848Q could be the protection that would be given to a defendant under those circumstances would be, needless to say, if they came in at the last minute, minimum. No, we're, we're talking about coming in at the first minute. The petition is there without an abuse of discretion. The court says, um, I don't have to waste time while you amend this petition. I've got a petition in front of me. It is, for any one of various reasons, inadequate. And I dismiss it. Uh, that has nothing to do with timing. It may well be, and it may well be within the court's discretion not to stay if they deliberately wait and come in at the last minute. We're not talking about that. We're simply talking about the authority of a court consistent with our construction of the Constitution and the procedural rules to dismiss before counsel has had a chance to do anything. And you're saying it would not be an abuse of discretion. Yes, I am saying that. I'm saying that 848Q, right to counsel, is conditioned upon a 2254 or actually a a habeas corpus proceeding is defined by Title 28, Chapter 153, and all the statutory provisions therein, all of which uniformly require a petition or an application to be pending, and incidentally, none of which address any pre-petition or application stay of the proceeding. Under this God's case, that applies without regard to the time of the petition. That is, if the petition is inadequate, it can be dismissed, and that's the end of it. I take it that that's what this, that's what this case holds, the district court can look at the hand-drawn petition, say it's no good, goes up on review, uh, affirms that it's no good, and then, as Justice Souter said, where is there room for counsel in that picture? Yes, that can happen. But underlying all this concern is the assumption that federal habeas review is somehow indispensable to the state's valid imposition of a death sentence, and it simply is not. There is no constitutional requirement of federal habeas review or of counsel in federal habeas review. You're saying it's perfectly rational for the federal government to say, where you've come forward with a good claim, we'll give you counsel to help you. But where there's, where there's, where there's no good claim, we do not provide counsel to engender a claim. It's perfectly rational. And if the language reads that way, you're saying we should read it that way. May I ask a, a, a factual question? Uh, in the first part of the blue brief, there's a description of the practice, an informal practice that had developed before the Gosh case was decided. Is that an accurate statement of what the practice was before? I don't remember exactly how it was delineated there. I believe it was. We, our office does not oppose a stay of execution. If anything is filed that can reasonably, and we, we're talking reasonably as if it were almost a pro se petition, or was a pro se petition, filed, that can be construed as a habeas application. So, for example, when something is filed saying, I want to stay, and here's four potential grounds for relief, we will say, if the court should... The practice they describe is they, as I understand it, they, they would file a perfunctory petition which recited one claim that had been raised on direct appeal, mm-hmm. knowing that there might be more there, but, that, but then routinely there was no opposition to a stay as long as there was a, a claim stated that had been... Had been That's correct. But then that all changed after the Gosh case. That changed... That was not the procedure that was followed in Gosh. I can't say that that has all changed. Uh, it is still our office's position, and most of the courts are continuing to act in that manner of allowing time to file amended petitions 
in that sort of thing. And I also would like to point out that wasn't McFarland's situation was that if Goss was going to apply in his case and he filed just this rudimentary petition, he was at grave risk of having it thrown out because it was not, would not have been a well-pleaded complaint and then not being able to come with a counsel petition. That wasn't, wasn't he, that was a real risk for him. That was his risk in federal court. But underlying McFarland's claims here is the assumption that somehow the procedure fell down in the first instance in the Texas courts because Texas does not routinely and regularly with a uniform procedure provide for the appointment that of counsel. That had to do with the timing of it. I think that as well said she wanted to exhaust the state remedy. But now we're not talking about a question of timing. Uh, as was brought out in the colloquy with Justice Souter. It could be at the earliest possible moment. The prisoner writes this hand-drawn petition is no good. It gets thrown out. It's affirmed on appeal. That's the end of federal habeas. There's never been any chance for 848 to operate. And you say that's what Congress contemplated, that the, that the uh, prisoner himself must write a decent enough petition, not a pro forma petition of the, the kind that went on before Gosh but a really good petition. Habeas jurisdiction is conditioned upon there being errors of constitutional dimension identified and the factual support for those set forth in an application. And Congress has not changed its delineation of a federal habeas proceeding. As a practical... Discovered by the prisoner himself if he has no lawyer. There are several underlying assumptions here that need to be addressed. First of all, if it was known four months, three months in advance that the resource center was going to be unable to recruit counsel, petitioner should have been and maybe was advised of that fact. There still exists in Texas the inmate legal services legal group that will provide representation for all indigent non-fee producing cases. That organization has not been utilized since the advent of the Texas Resource Center, but it nonetheless continues to exist. May, may I ask you this question? Aren't you making an argument for unreasonable delay as opposed to an argument about jurisdiction? Maybe they waited until too late here. Maybe it would not have been an abuse of jurisdiction uh, to deny the stay. But we've got, we've got a jurisdictional question about the, uh, the, the, the power of the court to appoint counsel and to grant a stay if warranted. And I don't see how that question turns on the facts that you're arguing. You're correct. It doesn't. And the, the equitable concerns seem to have come in in this case, although they should not come in, in terms of analyzing whether jurisdiction should be found in this case. And in fact, this case is strictly controlled by 2251. They were, I don't want to, am I interrupting your answer? Right? No. I, 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 there's one other question that runs through my mind in these cases when we talk about the delay. This is a case, as I understand it, started in uh, 1988, early 1988, the man was indicted. And the proceedings in the Texas direct review system ended sometime in 1993. And then all of a sudden we had this terrible emergency, a matter of a few weeks after the execution date is set. Uh, is, this, is this period of time, uh, where it's mostly in the state court, uh, typical in Texas? You have these long delays between trial and, and then it suddenly becomes an emergency at the end of four or five years? That period of delay 
is not at all unusual. Um, in Texas? It, it can vary anywhere from two years to eight years. But then what is, why is there such a sudden emergency after four or five years? You've got to get everything done. You can't let them have two or three weeks to get a lawyer. I don't understand the contrast between five years on the one hand and a matter of weeks on the other. Well, there was not just a matter of two or three weeks to get a lawyer. In this case, they had at least four months following the denial of certiorari review to get an attorney. Well, I must say that that's, uh, it, it's, 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 it's hard to expect uh, federal judges or any judges to get excited about staying a Texas execution when Texas itself diddles around for three or four years before trying the individual. Uh, and and uh, I think you should... You should bear that in mind. If, if, if you want us to get serious, you should get serious yourselves. Uh, Texas is well aware of that fact, and in fact, in the 1993 legislative session, tried to amend our habeas procedure to provide for the regular and routine appointment, to provide for filing deadlines that would not necessitate setting execution dates to compel state what litigation. Real, what wasn't the real uh, delay here much before that? Um, if, if I have the figures, the dates right, McFarlane was convicted in November of 89, but his conviction wasn't affirmed on appeal until December of 92. Now, what accounts for that length of time just on the direct appeal took so long? In this, in this particular case, I can't speak to specifics, but I do know that it frequently takes a year to get the record on appeal compiled, that the uh, direct appeal may raise 20, 25 claims so that the briefing on each side goes way outside the normal uh, statutorily prescribed limits for filing each the briefs on each side. The, uh, it seems extraordinary that, that you are complaining about the um, few months that lapsed here and said that that is no occasion for a stay, and yet in the state's own process it took over three years to get from the conviction to the affirmance on appeal. It has been my experience in watching a number of capital cases go through, that that period of time is not unusual on direct appeal, nor is that period of time at all unusual for a case to be pending before a federal district court. The issue here is how to make the petitioner proceed in an orderly fashion from one stage of litigation to another. Sometimes these cases raise complex issues that require extended review. The period of time in between should not be one that is simply used to sit there and say, I don't have counsel. It should be used for the preparation of a petition. And Texas tried to provide for the regular and routine appointment of counsel and for the, a series of filing dates that did not require execution dates to be set. And that provision was defeated by the very people who are now the lobbying of the very people who are now representing McFarland in this court and by the lobbying of some of the groups who have appeared as amicus you mean in this it was, case. You mean it was defeated, it was pending in the legislature? It got through the Texas House and did not get passed in the Texas Senate and it will be reintroduced. It may be that the defeat had nothing to do with uh, giving the defendant an adequate opportunity to be to get counsel. It may be that there were other reasons for opposing the measure. There, there could have been. Uh, it has been my experience that, that while the appointment of counsel is a desired feature by the defense bar, then abuse doctrine is not. Do you know what the, what, what are the, what are the capital defendants' lawyers get paid in Texas for representing defendants in the, in the state system? At trial? Yeah. I'm afraid I do not know the answer. They are paid by the state. Yes, they are. 
As the court recognized, the issue before the court is properly one of jurisdiction, not of the equitable concerns here. Under Conway, an action is not pending until it is commenced by the filing of the initial designated pleading. While civil actions are commenced by the filing of a complaint, a federal habeas corpus proceeding is commenced by the filing of an application or petition in which available grounds for relief are identified and the factual support for each ground is set forth. Let me ask another question about your petition. Assume we don't have any deadline or time problems and a petitioner just wants to get a lawyer and he files a perfunctory petition that's dismissed as, as, as really saying nothing. And then later he gets a lawyer and comes in for the second time. Would it be your position that that second petition was an abuse of the writ? Yes. It would. The understanding that a habeas application is commenced by the filing of an application or petition raising constitutional bases for relief is consistent with the court's conclusion in Barefoot versus Estelle that a state can only be entered if there is a substantial showing of the denial of a federal right upon which relief might be granted. It's also consistent with the jurisdictional concerns expressed by the court in disposing of petitions filed by next friends. And finally, it's consistent with the legislative history of the habeas corpus statutes. In 1908, Congress attempted to eliminate the delay in the carrying out of state executions attributable to frivolous appeals by enacting the CPC requirement. And in 1934, Congress eliminated the provision for automatic stays. The provisions of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act contained in 848Q do not authorize the pre-petition stays of execution. 848Q does not expand the scope or meaning of the term proceeding as used in 2251, nor does 848Q constitute an expressly authorized exception to the prohibition of the Anti-Injunction Act under the analysis of Mitchum versus Foster. Both the provisions, as we, as I stated earlier... Can I just understand it? Your essential position is that what must be done and what cannot be avoided is in, in the first instance, the petitioner himself file an adequate petition, uncounseled. That is correct. That's, that's what has to happen. He has to draw the petition. He cannot have a lawyer unless he can pay for one, draw his petition. So the well-pleaded complaint has to come from the pro se uh, petitioner. That's the, that's the nub of your argument, that to get your foot in the door, he has to do it on his own. The, the critical point of my argument is that he's not entitled to a stay while he finds counsel. He must have a constitutional basis for relief. Yes, but that but the constitutional basis would be coming in with an adequate complaint. And he can't get counsel for that. And he's not entitled to counsel, you say, until he has that well-pleaded complaint on his own. I, I took it that that's what you were saying. I just wanted you to confirm that that is indeed what your position is. I, I disagree only that I believe that he can file an adequate complaint without the assistance of counsel. Well, and you, and you don't insist that he come in on his own. He may well be able to find counsel. He's, he say, look, all you have to do is file a well-pleaded complaint for me. I don't want you to try the whole habeas matter. I don't even want you to do all the investigation. All I have to do is make out a, a solid federal claim. Then I'll get free federal counsel. It, it would make it a lot easier to get to get uh, um, a state-appointed counsel if, if you knew that all, all that person is committed to is getting the foot in the door, whereupon the federal system will take over and you'll get another counsel. Isn't, isn't that a, a, a plausible scenario? In, if I understand your question correctly, yes. And in fact, in this case, Tarrant County District Attorney's Office said, file a petition of any sort. We will not oppose a stay or modification of execution date. 
and the circumstances that existed in Gosh did not prevent McFarland in the state courts from filing a perfunctory petition and from filing an amended petition. So Congress can be relying on, on, on state-provided uh, free legal services to get the foot in the door. And once the foot is in the door, the federal funding will take over. That seems to me a perfectly reasonable disposition. Does, does, the, does the state finance these things? The state habeas actions? Yeah. In some, they have the authority to, they do not have the obligation they, to. They didn't in this case. No. I take it there's no state agency or defense agency that maintains a list of lawyers who are willing to file well-pleaded complaints for free. There is no, there is no state agency that maintains that list. There is a staff council for inmates that, if they are requested to represent a death sentence inmate who is indigent, will do so. There is also the Texas they, Resource they Center. Have, they have, they, are there enough of them to, to represent all of these people to get their well-pleaded complaints in? I do not know the size not, of their staff. Not, you don't know how many there are? No. In the, in the Goss case, it was the district judge who decided to rule on the petition. It wasn't the state that asked for it, was it? it that is correct. The district judge did it on his own. Right. Was it the same district judge in this case? No. No. And in, in fact, in another case in Texas that immediately followed this one, there was a suggestion from the district judge that they file a perfunctory petition with a request to be relieved to file an amended petition, and uh, that was not followed. If there are no further questions of the court, I will. Thank you, Ms. Griffey. Uh, Ms. Welch, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I want to correct something that I said in response to a question that Justice Scalia asked. We did not specifically request in our letter to the state court, did not request appointment of counsel. We asked that we be allowed time to recruit volunteer counsel. There was a pro se motion that was presented to the judge requesting a stay in time to obtain counsel. But uh, I don't, that is not in the record and I don't believe it specifically asked for appointment. The appointment system in Texas it, it really varies on a, on a county by county basis. Nowhere in Texas does the state provide funds for indigent defense, either at the trial level or at the uh, post conviction habeas level. All of that is done by counties. And some judges take the position that they do not have the authority to provide counsel in habeas. And that was the position of the judge in this case. Therefore, you didn't ask. That's, yeah. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, I and, I, and I would also like to uh, address the, the problem that was created by the absence of any rules or procedures in state court. We were faced with the same dilemma in state court that we were faced with in federal court. The district attorney, just like the attorney general's office, did agree not to oppose a stay if Mr. McFarlane filed a perfunctory petition. But the judge made it quite clear that he would not allow time for counsel to be recruited in order to amend that petition. He made it quite clear that he would not appoint counsel to represent Mr. McFarlane on that petition. And when it was explained to him that we could not, unless we had additional time, he made it quite clear that we would not be allowed to substitute counsel even if volunteer counsel was, was found. So it, it's not quite so simple to say that they agreed, agreed not to pose a, a stay, just as the Attorney General's Office agreed 
not to oppose a stay. They were unable to agree, they were unable to assure us in any way that, that the judge would appoint counsel, and in fact, the judge said he would not. Thank you, Thank Ms. Wells. The case is submitted.